Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. So after another action-packed week at the Emirates, it's time to take stock. It's the international break, so a lot of our players are flying off around the world, which seems eminently sensible just as the third wave of COVID is lapping at the shores of the UK. Never mind, we need to take an overview of what's been happening at our crazy club. Well, we got the big hitters in once again. Some of them may even have been vaccinated. Amy Lawrence, James McNicholas and Art de Roche from The Athletic. Hello, everyone. Hello, mate. Hi, Hello. I, I've actually realised that none of you probably have been vaccinated because you're all young. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, it that, feels I'll good. I'll take that as a massive compliment, Stephanie. <laughs> well, it feels good, let me tell you. feels good, and, I, and I'm really pleased that Bill Gates is looking after everything for me now. Anyway, <laughs> we are recording this podcast on a Wednesday morning after the unbelievably poor start, followed by the stirring comeback at West Ham on Sunday. Uh, for an opening question, we did talk about doing best comebacks, but... We've done that one so many times because we go behind so often. So we wanted to make it a bit more general. Can you recall an absurd, frustrating or stupid goal Arsenal have conceded? Uh, <laughs> can you recall? Um, Art, we'll start with you. Quite a few to choose from. Yeah, so many to choose from. But I think um, looking back, I think the the episodes I call them against Southampton in the mid-2010s were just something I couldn't stay away from so from those games I remember the Sadio Mane goal uh looped looped left foot shot over uh Roy Jack Sesny and Mert uh, trying to hook it away but actually hooking it into the goal um and then <laughs> the year after Cuckoo Martinez like I don't even know what to call it outside of the boot rocket that just seemed to fly into the bottom corner those were two that just sprung to mind immediately yeah. That was certainly absurd and stupid, that other one, uh, that second one. Uh, James, what about you? Uh, I can't get the 2018 League Cup final out of my head and Skodra Mustafi kind of not heading the ball away, allowing it to bounce through Sergio Aguero to run through and put it over the keeper. It was just, you don't see that happen very often in football matches that a defender will kind of almost duck out of the challenge. It, it Yeah, very memorable because... I haven't seen many goals like that at all. Did I ever mention to you that I was I when their goalkeeper had the ball, I thought I'd just look down at my phone for a minute, just to, I don't know, <laughs> social media. And when I looked up, Aguero's threw on goal. And I thought, what, what? I don't understand how that could happen. It almost yeah. happened the other day, by the way, uh, when there was a, a kick out. I can't even remember which game. I think it might have been Olympiacos at home. Uh, but yeah, it does happen frighteningly often. Um, Amy, uh, can you narrow it down to 10? <laughs> well, you know what? One just sprang out, actually. Uh, a, an episode of such unremitting horror that I have tried to obliterate it from my mind, but it was the shambles at the end of the League Cup final against Birmingham. Oh. Um, I mean, you know, Arsenal, I think, 
a lot of us have mentioned lately have sort of almost turned it into an art form, the sort of concession of absolutely idiotic goals. Um, but but that one just was massively costly as well. And there's sort of photographs from that day that uh, I've had the misfortune of seeing. Um, and the, 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 the sheer sort of like pain and humiliation and angst and embarrassment uh, as... And also it was sad because I think Shelney and Chesney were, you know, Godran Mustafi makes an appalling mistake. Well, you're not that surprised or, you you know, you. but I, I really felt a bit more maybe for um, Shelney, who did have mistakes in him, but was a really wholehearted player and wouldn't have done something that costly uh, without it really hurting. And Chesney, who was uh, a real Arsenal boy when he came through at the club and had a lot of... I always felt that he and Jack Wilshire had the spirit, let's just say, to kind of take the baton from what you might call kind of Arsenal characteristics and take that into the future. Um, they really... They both understood exactly what it means to, to be Arsenal. Uh, so that would have hurt him as well. And it was a really grim sort of like after you after you i do remember like in the old days going to games um on the terraces and when when defenders did completely foolish daft things uh the crowd would go we don't really do that anymore but it's a rather much missed aspect of football watching yeah we'd be singing it four times a game though wouldn't we to be fair so but i get your point um yeah, I actually I actually had a look um, on the internet. Uh, if you just put in Arsenal defensive mistakes, uh, whole <laughs> videos come up with sort the of... The internet funny... explodes. It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> well, yeah, there's loads. Arsenal defensive mistakes 2019. There was, a, there was a pass from Socrates that was intercepted against Watford and walloped into the goal by... Wasn't Troy Deeney, but uh, uh, one of those. But the one that struck me was... Uh, was uh, the squadron leader, as I called him, squadron Mustafi, uh, against Crystal Palace when he mm. shielded the ball and and, uh, and Will Saha just sort of run round behind him and stroked it in, oh. and that was uh, that was a bad one, uh, a very angry uh, Emirates. The, that was the, the beginning of the end for Unai Emery, I felt, and um, yeah, grim to watch. Um, we're going to do the same uh, uh, opening question for the next six weeks and just choose different ones, by the way. Uh, just so as you know, we could. this is an on-running series. I mean, to be honest, uh, we're not playing this week, so we won't have any new ones, but um, there's plenty to choose from. Uh, right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all our podcasts. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at the time. Now in part two... We'll be talking about the pieces, uh, the articles that have been written in The Athletic, uh, including Art de Rocher's piece on why Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang does not work on the right, and also James and Tom Warville's piece about Thomas Partey's shooting, <laughs> which ain't been that good, uh, as you'll hear in part two. Um, as for this week, we're not going to go over the West Ham game too much, um, I, I, I noticed uh, James does the uh, Arscast with Arsblog, 
and he wrote a piece about upgrading the squad. Uh, I'm assuming, mm. James, that you did talk about it. Um, the main one, uh, and it does seem to be the main topic of conversation, is uh, keeping Odegaard. Um, uh, is that, James, the most important bit of transfer business we can do in the summer? I'm starting to think it might be. Certainly the way he's playing. I mean, I think he, we knew he was a player with a lot of ability, but I think he's exceeding maybe even expectations. Um, and crucially, he seems to be getting better and better every game. I think it shouldn't be underestimated how difficult it can be to arrive at a new club halfway through a season in a new league and make a very quick impact. And he has managed to do that. And I feel as if actually his presence in the team is quite important to this team's development, you know, the way that we play. Um, and to lose him, you'd be looking to replace him almost like for like, I think. We need someone of that ilk, someone of that nature. And I, I don't think that will be easy. I'm not enormously confident about the prospects of keeping Martin Odegaard, but I really hope Arsenal can because I think he's been excellent. And the West Ham performance really was, you know, his crowning performance at Arsenal. I mean, it was superb, I thought. And crucially, I thought even when we were 3-0 down, he was one of the guys out on the pitch who was still playing positively, looking to make stuff happen. And I think you learn a lot about your players in a circumstance like that. Uh, Amy, isn't the problem that the better he plays, it's going to be noted by Real Madrid. Uh, and they and they might think, oh, you know what? We want him back after the season he's having. Maybe, but I think he was earning some pretty rave reviews when he was at Real Sociedad as well on loan. So I don't know whether it's a question of how well he plays. I think it's maybe a question of the age profile and balance of the Real Madrid team on one hand, because, you know, they have got uh, some quite veteran uh, playmaking legs in their team um, who probably can't go on forever. And if you've got someone of that quality who could be a ready-made replacement, I'm sure that's very tempting. But there is the Zidane factor as well. And um, it seems like that Zidane, for whatever reason, is... um, not shown huge interest in giving Martin Odegaard a lot of game time. And if he stays, there seems to be a feeling that there might be more of a chance for Arsenal. And if, for whatever reason, Zidane is no longer at Real Madrid, that obviously someone else might come in with a different view. But just echoing James's point, I mean, I found... <laughs> the only thing I would say about the West Ham game is was one of those games where after about 20 minutes, you do end up sitting there thinking, surely there's something better I should be doing with my... My afternoon. Um, <laughs> They're and paint I drawing thought, somewhere I could watch. Well, yeah, exactly. But but he was the one thing that was like keeping it interesting almost from an Arsenal point of view until they began to get themselves in gear and come back. But in, in there is something that you have to examine. Why is it that when you're 3-0 down an absolute garbage that the, the one player who is pulling it together and helps you get out of this and has the charisma on the pitch, the personality, the determination and drive to not just throw in the towel, is the kid on loan. I mean, where was everyone else at that moment? They needed him. You know what, Amy, you do make a good point. Is it possible, Art, that part of the reason that he did manage to hold things together was because everything was sort of going through him? He was demanding... He's not, the he's not been smashed up by, <laughs> into Arsenal bad habit land yet. <laughs> well, he was part of a team that was that was 3-0 down in 20 minutes. So he's on the way, isn't he, to acquiring that, that elusive Arsenal DNA. But ah, I ask again, everything went through him because he was demanding the ball, but he's also in that position. It's harder for, say, Kieran Tierney or Callum Chambers to affect the game, even though Callum Chambers did do good work. But it was partly down to Erdegaard wanting the ball and receiving the ball and, and not hiding, which some of our midfield players can do. Yeah, and I think that's something that we've seen with Odegaard whenever he's played, really, even in the uh, Olympiacos second leg. No, first leg, sorry, uh, where he had a difficult opening half an hour. He was still trying to make things happen. And then he eventually did with his goal. And I think that's where you've probably seen what uh, qualities he has that we probably didn't expect to see in terms of leadership, where he's quite literally dragging Arsenal through games at times. And I think that's where that's where um, the trust as well uh, has come from Mikel Arteta because he's seen that Martin Odegaard is able to not just uh, add creativity to the side, but also 
instruct players around him. I mean, they did another um, YouTube open mic uh, video and the focus was on him and you could hear him uh, instructing Bukayo Saka and Alexandre Lacazette on their pressing or constantly. And I think that's something that is uh, just as important as, as you mentioned, his uh, creative abilities, uh, which of course uh, dragged Arsenal back into the game. I'm just wondering whether some of this is to do with not just about, we're looking at it from a very Arsenal point of view, but if you actually look at it from a Martin Odegaard point of view, then there's an element there that's really interesting. I mean, we had uh, Svea from Norway on not so long ago, uh, who's been watching him for a long time. And after about three or four games uh, at Arsenal, because obviously he's being hugely watched back home in Norway, how he's getting on. He's the captain of their uh, national he, team, right? He is. He is. And he, he, he sent me a message saying, you know, this is a real critical moment in his career because he's, he's playing too shy. You know, he seems to have mislaid that thing that makes him special. And if you think back to the first three or four games where he always looked a very, very tidy and accomplished technical player, what he didn't have, it seemed, and what has grown in him and on the team is this confidence to be the man to make it happen, to use that technical security and quality and imagination. Um, and maybe because he hadn't played a lot of football, he just needed to work his way back into his truest form or his best form because he's got things to prove as well. Uh, and it's a it, it's an opportunity for him. And maybe that's one of the reasons why he he's got this drive to, like all great players do, to not just affect the game, but to, you know, to make sure you make the best of your career. And at his age, with his background, uh, I think it must feel to him like the time is right to be a dominant player in world football. And he's doing, he seems to be doing everything to show that at the moment. I mean, I think the last few appearances, he's been almost flawless. It's been an absolute marvel to watch. His use of space and time, he just, the, like all the great players who have that ability to, um, look like they're affecting the you know the way that the time is taking place on the game to slow it down or speed it up to make space for himself to make space for others it's a it's an absolute gift I mean do you think James that perhaps you know this uh, maybe what Amy's saying that that uh, Odegaard had a look around he spent three or four games thinking actually I might be the best player here <laughs> and at that point he you know as as a captain material which obviously is in Norway he took control of it and went okay I'm I'm sitting here and give me the ball and I will direct the traffic I think a player like him a lot of their game is dependent on relationships. And I think what's really encouraging about Odegaard is very quickly established really good relationships with a number of different players. You know, if you look at that right-hand side that we had against West Ham, he's playing with Callum Chambers and they combined really, really well. Thomas Partey's in a little triangle on that side too. Uh, and I thought that was a really effective triangle. And actually, all our right-backs in the last few weeks have at different times, I think, produced really positive performances. Cedric's played well. We've seen Bellerin have some of his better games of late. Um, and, of course, Chambers at the weekend. And I think a lot of that is down to Odegaard. You know, he, he has a very natural understanding of kind of the dynamics of that side of the pitch. And in terms of, you know, will he stay, won't he stay? I think the fact that he has been now made the permanent official captain of Norway might be something that counts in Arsenal's favour. I mean, if you're your country's international captain, you absolutely know you need to be playing week in, week out to preserve that place and to preserve that form and that regularity, that rhythm of games. And he gave an interview in Norway this week, a journalist called Arilas Uldsad, I hope I haven't mangled the pronunciation there too much, but he said, <laughs> I haven't sure thought about, <laughs> I'm sure it was perfect, yeah. Um, it's about as good as my pronunciation of Odegaard, to be fair. And he said, I haven't thought about what will happen in the summer yet. The deal with Arsenal is till, until the end of the season. We'll see what happens. I've said things before that I still stand for. Stability and development are key words. And I think, you know, if you do want to find reason for encouragement, I think in that last sentence, he shows you maybe what his values are. And they're values that I can imagine that in the pitch Mikel Arteta is effectively making to him over these next few weeks and months. That might ring some bells, you know, something might chime there. Let's hope so, because I'd really love to see him at the Emirates Stadium next season. And I'd love the Arsenal fans to get to watch him in the flesh. Quite. That would be nice. I mean, of those two words, development sounds more Arsenal than stability right now. But let's let's see how it goes. I guess it depends to a certain extent, Art, on whether... 
Real Madrid can buy Mbappe or something. And if they do, maybe they can't afford Erdegaard. We don't know what's going on over there. Yeah, and I think um, <laughs> James mentioned it in his post-match piece about Erdegaard, how uh, to kind of fund the transfer for Gareth Bale in 2013, they sold Meta Ozil to Arsenal. So if there's... Um, uh, if history repeats itself this time around, I think uh, everyone with an Arsenal um, kind of heart will, will be fine with that. You mentioned, James, you mentioned Callum Chambers. Um, I mean, I've written down, uh, uh, if we sell Hector Bellerin, would Callum Chambers be an adequate replacement uh, for Hector Bellerin? Uh, Amy, I'm going to come to you first. I, I mean... I saw something in Callum Chambers that I hadn't seen uh, before when he played against West Ham. I mean, his delivery was outstanding. Uh, Teo, our producer, was talking about how we seem to, our memories and our ideas about Callum Chambers seem to be, to a certain extent, tainted by him getting roasted by Jefferson Montero at Swansea about five years ago. But he looks like a different person now. And that delivery, I mean, if he can do that every week, surely he's a menace, isn't he? Yeah, but I think that there's more to Callum Chambers than people like to think uh, and uh, before he got injured I think he was one of Arsenal's best players for a start that's one thing I would say um, and also he played a year on loan at Fulham in midfield so passing and use of the ball was was a big part of what he was doing over there and he had a good season and I just don't think sort of uh, categorising him as a sort of third stroke, fourth choice centre-back who can maybe fill in here or there. It, that's underestimate, underestimating him a little bit. I'm really pleased that he's come back from a very difficult injury um, and got another chance to show what he can do because I think he's a really useful member of the squad. We've got to let Art have a go on Callum Chambers. <laughs> James, James knows how much <laughs> how much I've been writing about him, how much I've wanted to speak about him. But, um, I think, yeah, when I... Because um, Arsenal actually put him up for a press conference during the Europa League group stages. And I did ask him about that time at Fulham. And he said even though like he was playing in midfield, it did actually help him when he moved back to centre-back and even when he's played at right-back because he knows where and what the midfielder wants from the centre-back or the right-back. And I think even um, at Burnley he showed maybe not the same execution in terms of the uh, deliveries but the same appetite to get forward at least and there was uh, a moment in that game where where a move came from him bursting down the right and linking with Bukayo Saka where Saka probably should have scored but didn't and I think that uh, when looking at the Arsenal's centre-back uh, conundrum I guess we'll call it in the summer um, yes uh, there is William Saliba to come back from loan and other players like Rob Holden, who's signed a new contract in January. But when you look at how David Luiz's contract is to expire and probably uh, we're not sure at the moment whether that will be extended, I think he's probably got a really good chance of staking a claim for for continuing his Arsenal career further. And I, I don't think that people would have expected that uh, maybe... Uh, three or four months ago. Art makes a good point about David Luiz's contract expiring and who knows what will happen there. But one of the things that Luiz is really useful for and praised for, rightly, is his range of passing. But, I mean, Chambers, as much as he's going to get credit for the assists he got against West Ham, what about that pass he played off the outside of his right boot to play in Alexandre Lacazette, who then his shot was cleared off the That's line when ball. he loved the keeper? Outside of the foot, central part of the pitch picked out the run, lifted it over the back line. I mean, Chambers has played in central field. He has got real technical quality. So maybe it isn't beyond the realms of possibility to think that he might be able to kind of step into those clown shoes of David Luiz. <laughs> <laughs> Big clown shoes to fill, though, I would suggest. Yeah. Um I, I We wanted to look forward. One of the questions we wrote on our group document, how long before we accept that the goalkeeper, Burnt Leno, isn't quite good enough for, for us to challenge at the top level? Uh, Amy, do you accept the premise of the question? And if you do, where do we go? Uh, second part of the question depends on loads of stuff, like how much money is floating around, how many potential players are floating around. Um, there is a goalkeeping issue to an extent in the sense that even whatever you think of Leno... Um, the deputies at the moment are Matt Ryan on loan. So either that becomes more of a permanent thing or not. Uh, and uh, Renarsson, who's had an 
obviously a difficult time and wasn't trusted enough that it wasn't necessary to get Ryan in. So there is a slightly broader picture there. Um, I think you've got to establish whether it's Leno is just having a blip or whether you think there is a broader problem. Uh, I, I don't think that... Um, I know that it's a, it's a sore point and the old Martinez-Leno debate doesn't go away that easily. Um, although what obviously what's done is done. Some people can't let it go as easily as they might because Leno's had a difficult time um, very recently. I, I guess um, the question is whether he can recover a bit of composure because recent games have just been a bit too error prone and too costly so i'd watch this space before making any dramatic decisions yes <laughs> yeah and no, i wasn't asking for a definitive answer but yes uh, i i agree but uh james i mean we can look back through the history of the, of the premier league and before that if you look at the top two teams in the premier league in the 90s uh and the early 2000s where arsenal and manchester united had the best two goalkeepers you can say that now or not this season about manchester city and liverpool have the best two goalkeepers um it's it's an incredibly important position, and uh, he's not quite up to it. This is just know. a question, by the yeah, way. Yeah, I, I, I'm not convinced myself. I think he is in a bad patch, but I think I think we forget very quickly how good he has been in general over the last eighteen months. Until yeah, but surely, sorry, weeks. James, surely it's about consistency with goalkeepers. It's almost like oh, they're there, and we don't have to think about them at all. We've had too many conversations about goalkeeping errors, have we not? I, I, I just don't think that's the case. I, I think we've made a lot of defensive errors, but he has recently had some high-profile mistakes. But I think we're talking about a period of a few weeks. And I think, I, I take your point on consistency, but I do think a lot of goalkeepers have ups and downs. And I think that's kind of natural. Um, I, I, I really feel like last season, until his injury, he was quite possibly Arsenal's player of the season. I think at the start of this season, he really performed in a way that, certainly until Christmas, kind of put to bed the Emmy Martinez debate. Um, as, as excellent as Martinez has been for Aston Villa, I think Leno had been as good for Arsenal. I think where it becomes really interesting is sort of the question of, is he the right keeper to take us to exactly where we want to go? And that being the very top of the game. And I think that's really hard to answer because I feel, feel like the challenge of being a goalkeeper for a really, really top side is different. You know, Leno is a goalkeeper who seems to do very well when he's pretty busy. Uh, he's a goalkeeper who can make a lot of saves. He's a very good shot stopper. But if you think about someone like a David Seaman playing behind that famous back four, it's, it's a very different game. It's much more about focus, concentration, being alive on the one or two sometimes occasions that you're called upon. And frankly, I don't think Leno's ever really played behind a defence that's enabled us to judge him in that way. And I think it's very possible that he isn't that goalkeeper. But for where Arsenal are at this point in their trajectory, I think he's I think he's pretty good. But it, you know, it's a matter of debate, and I would accept that recently there have been mistakes and they definitely need to be cut out. I mean, that sort of leads on our, to our, our general position in the football firmament and and where we are at the moment. I mean we're still in the Europa League. Uh, it's possible, though, that our only chance of European football might be next season is to win the trophy. Um, we also we, we go 3-0 down to West Ham in 20 minutes and great, a stirring comeback. But are we too accepting of, of, uh, of us being mediocre is not a, good, not a good word, but not as good as we used to be? I don't think that's the case. I know, obviously, in terms of quality, I just think people realize that Arsenal aren't what they once were and with that comes I guess an acceptance of of uh maybe standards dropping which isn't what most people would want to hear but it's just the reality and I think in terms of the the Leno discussion it's a case where I feel that Arsenal have a very good goalkeeper who as James highlighted is probably at his best when he's uh making reaction saves when he is busy and probably isn't as good when he has a bit more time to think about what he's doing and that's probably been seen 
especially recently with when he is on the ball, maybe he should be going long a bit more often or just maybe <laughs> take a, take some time and think about the decision he's going to make before he makes it. Um, but then when you, I guess, look across the board, the whole squad, you probably say, yes, Arsenal have some very good players, say Granit Xhaka in midfield, but is he the the player to maybe push them back to where they once were? Uh, maybe there are too many individual mistakes with him as well to, to make that argument. And I think for for where Arsenal are in their current state, um, I wouldn't say those looking on the outside are too accepting of it, but I do think there is an understanding that the, the current crop of players aren't at, at the standard of, say, the Invincibles or George Graham's squad in the late 80s, early 90s. And I think... It's not a bad thing <laughs> that that people on the outside understand that, but um, wanting to push push the standards higher to to kind of reach those those past levels is is what everybody's going to want to do and what everybody say in inside the club should do. Yeah, let's get back to those days when we used to go three 0 down in twenty minutes to some big teams as opposed to West Ham, because <laughs> right? that that would be progress. <laughs> Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic from me, Ian Stone, and Amy Lawrence, James McNicholas and Art de Roche. Let's discuss some of the pieces you've written uh, for The Athletic. Uh, Art, I'll start with you. You wrote a piece um, about why uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang does not work on the right. Um, I mean, I mean, I read it and you could see it's... It's not just about this, but essentially, if he's on the right and he comes back in onto his weaker left foot, um, he's going to score less goals. Yeah, that was the main thing. And I think when when the squad got announced on, on the weekend, I looked at it and I saw Aubameyang and Lacazette and immediately my mind went to Aubameyang on the left, Saka on the right, Lacazette through the middle. And I was like... The game started and I was waiting for, for Aubameyang to, to just jog over to the left-hand side and it didn't happen. Um, of course, it did after the, the two early goals. But just in terms of stylistically, I think when managers have tried that in the past, it's been more about trying to get him into, in behind defences. But with how organised West Ham were, that just wasn't happening. And I think we saw him trying to have an influence but um, failing to do that because there just wasn't enough space for him to work his magic he's not the player where you expect him to to get the ball in tight spaces and make something happen he's the player you expect to be on the end of moves to 
apply the finish, finishing touch and that just wasn't happening. So um, it, it was strange to see that he started there instead of, say, Nicolas Pepe or even Bukayo Saka. But um, it's, I guess, it's weird to say it's encouraging, but I guess it is a good sign that Arteta recognised that and and switched him back to the left. Yeah, although, Amy, it would have been nice if he recognised it before the kickoff as opposed to when we're <laughs> two or three nil down. I mean, surely all this, James talks about this as well. Surely, Amy, it's about relationships and and uh, Aubameyang's relationships on the right don't seem to work out as well as they do on the left. I mean, I, does anyone know actually why, you know, what was the idea behind switching? What's the I don't have an idea. Oh, go on, James. What, what do you reckon? Well, uh, I, I wonder if it was to do with Cresswell, um, who provides a lot of crosses for West Ham. I think he might be leading them for assists. He gets forward a lot on the left flank. And I do wonder if having Aubameyang out on that side you know, A, would potentially give you the opportunity to exploit the space behind him and also potentially pin him back. Um, I, I I would guess that maybe that was in Arteta's thoughts. I don't know what you think, Art. That's kind of my thoughts, basically, as well, because uh, I think I mentioned it in the piece as well, where uh, the two examples that stick out to me when Aubameyang's gone over to the right is Burnley at home last season, David Luiz, long ball over the top, wins a corner, and then Arsenal score from the corner. And then I remember in the FA Cup against Newcastle this season, he was peeling out to the right as well, a lot, uh, basically looking for a long ball over the top. So so that that's kind of marrying up with James's theory as well. Amy, are you not encouraged then? I mean, I hear that and I think, OK, at least Mikel Arteta is actually thinking about trying to counter the opposition because I think we can all see in the last years of Arsene Wenger, that didn't happen that often. And it, and it's quite nice to see some sort of thinking in that way. Maybe, but you could flip it on the other side and say, what about thinking about the damage that Arsenal are going to do and prioritising that than stopping the opposition? Because if, if by moving Aubameyang to the right, it kind of became a weakness you're you're putting the you know you're preparing the game thinking about what the opposition are going to do more than thinking about what you're going to do from an attacking point of view maybe just an yeah. alternative I, I think element. swings and roundabouts isn't it to be honest yeah. and and it's You'd be and a it, manager eh uh, <laughs> well we don't have a go but I um, no I, really be crap <laughs> I can't make a decision I couldn't pick a team. That's true. You have three or four highlights so of every indecisive. opening question. That we <laughs> yeah, have. that is no, a fair no, point. It's not for me. <clears throat> um, James, uh, you and Tom Warville wrote a piece about Thomas Partey's uh, um, in brackets wild shooting. Um, I thought he was getting closer, you know, at the weekend. I, I mean, some of them have definitely been rosette. This one, I thought we were in, you know, maybe GH, something like that, uh, row-wise. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, do you think he's getting better at it? He scored some good goals for Ghana and for uh, Atletico, hasn't he, from that position? He has, he has. And let me be clear, when one of these finds the top corner... I will be on the pitch. I'll be delighted. And I think Thomas Partey's long-range shooting, it's its hardly top of our list of problems, but it is something that catches the eye. Um, and it's really interesting because Granite Xhaka, funnily enough, I wrote a similar piece about Granite Xhaka last season, his long-range shooting, and he used to take a similar amount of shots from distance. But after Mikel Arteta came in, that massively dropped off and his amount of shots he was taking in the game actually halved. And you can only assume this is under instruction. And it'll be interesting to see whether the same thing happens with Partey. I don't think it will because I think the way he plays the game, the forward runs he makes, you know, the breaks to the edge of the box, waiting for pullbacks. I think that the shooting is very much part of his game and part of the plan. I just think there might need to be a little bit more circumspection about the exact moments where he does it and maybe a slight technical thing too I mean something I've noticed is that he does tend to lean back on shots slightly and, and that's sending a lot of them over the bar but it, it's a there's two sides to this because in the first half of this season Arsenal were a team who weren't taking enough shots and there's a degree to which and we've all been at the Emirates Stadium with people crying shoot, shoot. desperate for someone to actually have a go Thomas Partey will you know alleviate some of that frustration um, but yeah let's just hope for a bit more accuracy going forward yeah, quite. I mean, I, Amy, I've seen um, 
I think James is right about Granite Xhaka as well. He used to shoot quite a bit, and there have been quite a few occasions. Are Arsenal a little bit shot-shy in general at the moment? And is that under instruction, do you think? Um, I don't know. I think it's feel, I, I, it felt like they were chronically shot-shy kind of in midwinter. That was very bleak. And I think compared to that, this feels positively shot-happy. Um, <laughs> yes. But I yes. like the idea of your sort of rowometer you know, uh, as a as a means, of, you know, you get heat maps and expected goals, and I think we need to have a Thomas Party rowometer <laughs> device. <laughs> to... Yeah, like people going, "H, that was a good one. Well done, Thomas. <laughs> Keep it going, just a bit he lower." Had a, he hasn't had a C all season. He has Come not on, even mate. had been close. He's not even <laughs> been close to a C. Um, okay. Uh, what we're going to do now is our regular. Uh, uh, game, game, uh, quiz, random arse generator. This is where Taylor Papula, our producer, sends me the name of an Arsenal player from the past and we have to come up with some random facts about it. Oh, what a lovely, lovely footballer we got today. It's little Santi Cazorla, everyone. Little Santi Cazorla. Ah, oh, I'll start with you. Give us something, a little fact, factoid, anything you like about Santi Cazorla. Um, so I went to the... 2013 North London Derby at the Emirates in September. I was in the clock end, took a picture of the goal celebration with Giroud and Cazorla, and he retweeted my tweet. <laughs> Yay, I'm excited for you. That's absolutely wonderful. That's Lovely. the kind of content we need. Like that. James, what have we got? Well, I can tell you that Arsenal really tried and wanted to sign Cazorla when he was 16. Um, similar fashion to Cesc Fabregas, the way they brought him over. They wanted to do the same for Cazorla then. He was um, only three foot two then. You know? I mean, imagine. Imagine how <laughs> tiny he was then. I mean, he was, and I think it was genuinely a, a concern, um, you know, his size. But he had this outstanding technical ability that was evident even then. Uh, and it, it was it's a really good example of a really long-term interest in a player because actually... They wanted to sign him when Cesc eventually left in 2011 and he ended up going to uh, Malaga, I believe it was, who were flush with cash at the time. And then when the money ran out there, we sort of were able to go back for Nacho Monreal and Santi Cazorla. But yeah, some long, long term interest in the player that led to him eventually joining. Amy? Come if you will, back to Wembley 2014. Everybody knows the story. So just to give it a bit of personal slant, um, uh, we were there with, as, a, as a big family event. It was a first Wembley experience. I had gone overboard in telling my eldest, who I think was then about six or something, about the significance of going to Wembley, um, where I'd over-egged it so much. I think he was so stressed. I'm going So going 2-0 down, nearly 3-0 down, but for a goal line clearance. Um uh, th- th- there was tears and uh, uh, and unsurprisingly uh, uh, it-, it got quite bad and my son wanted to go home, which obviously wasn't something you could really do in a Wembley Cup final. Um, and the best thing was my mate Eugene, who I've been going to football with for ever, uh, who was with us, we all tried to console the little lad who was in distress thinking it was all going wrong. And he turned around when Santi stood over the ball, over the free kick and he went, next goal wins. <laughs> Next goal wins. It is the little Spaniard, Santi Cazola! Arsenal one, Hull two. A classic free kick, and we're heading for a classic FA Cup final. Nothing McGregor could do about it. And when that goal went in, everything was all right. I'll always remember it, and it was an absolutely great cup final. Uh, and if you can recall the annoyance of having that sort of counting. Uh, clock of how many years it had been since Arsenal had won a trophy which is something that only applies to Arsenal because if other teams don't win trophies there doesn't seem to be this kind of constant totting up of how many years whatever you that it's been uh, but it was a long time and it was a monkey on the back and that monkey was chucked off and Santi was the one who ch- changed the um, turned the tide of that game brilliantly it was a fantastic free kick and on always be glad to watch it again yeah that was a it was a great free kick and a great cup final. Um, I remember him taking a corner once, and he was just about he put the ball down. He was just about to take it with his right foot, and he held up two hands. And something happened, and he went, "Oh, okay." And he just and he moved over and took it with his left foot. And I just thought, "Wow, how how is that possible that you can do that?" Uh, and um, 
I mean, generally, in fact, pinging passes with both feet 60 yards across the pitch. And he was just, well, he was just really, really good at football, wasn't he? Let's be fair. Uh, James, what have you got? Uh, I tell you, football must be genetic to an extent because one of my fondest memories of Santi Cazorla is of his son on the pitch. Uh, I think he was five or something like that at the time. It was the end of the season. He was really teeny. Yeah, he was, I mean, he was really tiny. I think it was the... (laughs) The lap of honour, as it was uh, termed at the time. I don't know if it still was called that. And it, yeah, he had his son out on the pitch, dribbling around, scoring goals. And, useful. Uh, he was useful and he was adorable as well. He was brilliant. Also, I think, James, I, I believe these days it's called a lap of appreciation. It is. Oh, that's I correct. I think we're allowed yes. to call it a lap of honour. It's not honour. A, a trophy to actually honour. Um, Thank you. We'd like mind. to honour the eighth place finishers. It doesn't work really, does it? Oh, what have we got? Uh, aside from the fact that he was really good at football, he was actually really funny as well. I think um, from that time period, I remember the um, promo video Arsenal did before they went to Australia on tour, and his Australia his attempt, I'll say, an Australian Australian accent is uh, something that just <laughs> I <laughs> I don't think anyone is going to forget anytime soon. So. Um, aside from being a, a great player, great character as well in that in that squad at that time. Amy, another well, just, Santa Cazorla. Just going back to your um, the two footed corner routine. Um, uh, I was fortunate to interview him once, and he talked about his two footedness. Because I, I mean, I don't know the how this works. Are people sort of born ambidextrous, or is it something you work on? I don't know enough about physiology, but I'm assuming that. In most people, you have to work at it and it's not a natural sort of freakish thing if you get it. Um, But he said that when he was young, he used to just decide on certain days of training that he would only use his other foot. Because I I think he did have a dominant foot when he was younger. Um, But he just decided almost of his own accord, not being told. It wasn't a coach saying, right, you've got to work on your left foot. You've got to do this with that. He just sort of took it on his own initiative to, to decide that he would only use one foot or the other for an entire session or match or whatever it might be until it became so natural. Wow. Mm. <laughs> wow, it's very impressive. Didn't he? I got a memory of him appearing in a smoke-filled tube when he signed for someone. <laughs> yes. Did I dream that or did that actually happen? That's, I think that might have been when an he signed kit for launch, Villarreal. Oh, I it? thought that was when he went back to Villarreal and he oh, it was. out of it a smoke filled tube. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. It was. <laughs> right, okay, okay. I'd like to I know sh- what the conversation was before, you know, all right, Santa, we got this idea. <laughs> Just get yeah. in this smoke filled tube. It was Villarreal, yeah. Get in the tube, <laughs> Santa. It'll all be fine. Honestly, there's plenty of air in there. Uh, I'll just. Um, uh, any others before we. Um, we're not going to declare a winner because this has just been very lovely, as Santa Cazorla appears to be. You can tweet him later and tell him, Art. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, any others? Yeah, I, I I couldn't let this game pass without mentioning that away game at the Etihad, which has kind of become the blueprint big game performance from Arsenal. And so much of that depended on the central midfield partnership of Cazorla and Coquelin, and particularly Cazorla. And I think sometimes we forget that the idea of playing Cazorla as a holding midfielder was pretty novel and relatively unexpected from Arsene Wenger. I mean, when he arrived at Arsenal, he initially played from the left-hand side in the same way that kind of Sami Nasri and Andreas Scharbin had done. He played a bit as a number 10 as well. But the idea of dropping him deep into that pivot with Coquelin next to him, you know, that was anathema at times in the Premier League. People thought that was crazy to put this little guy in there against all these six foot four holding midfield players. But the level of technical ability and the tactical intelligence he showed enabled him to flourish and that day in particular he was just astonishing he was he was I, uh, I should mention him him coming back from injury as well he had the most appalling injury uh and he ended up ended up having to have a skin graft which took part of his tattoo on his arm and it ended up on his ankle uh and thankfully he's still playing i think i said did he play in the arab league in one of the arab leagues somewhere and i saw yeah, him. he's in qatar he's, I believe. Team. he's in qatar right okay um yeah, how much any would others? you love to see him? How much would you love to see him back on the pitch at the Emirates one more time? I, I feel uh, a bit gutted that there's never been like some kind of I don't know uh, friendlies or, or, or testimonials or the kind of 
games or legends games where where he can come back and play because he never really got to say goodbye, which is a, a, a shame. You know, players don't often always have that kind of opportunity to be uh, given that send off that they merit, and he certainly does because everybody everybody loved him. And the just sort of the probably final abiding image is we've probably all seen this photo, and I don't know whose it is or where it came from. It's just the most wonderful photo of him where you can just see kind of like his eyes and the top of his head and then a huge amount of space above him, just peering over <laughs> the edge of the shot. Yeah, wasn't it for an advert? There was an advert yeah. or something. Giroud, I remember Olivier Giroud looking, you know, very handsome and uh, and Santi Cazorla just at the bottom of the shot. Um, I'm not sure what it was for. Um, what a wonderful, uh, wonderful football. I think we agree. Uh, um, let's have a song. Before we go, Art, we'll come to you first. So, I know we didn't want to focus on West Ham too much, but considering how crazy that game was, um, I'm guessing some of the listeners have heard it, but I'm not sure if you guys have. On Site by Kanye West. Uh, it's just very electronic, I'll say, and full of craziness, uh, like that game at the London Stadium was. So, that's that's my pick. <laughs> Yes. Okay. Now we know it's fine to look back for songs. Uh, James? Uh, well, I actually was also thinking of West Ham and particularly the second goal that we conceded after that uh, free kick. So I've gone for Ace of Base, Don't Turn Around, because they all did. <laughs> oh, we're not going there, but yes. Oh, uh, Amy? Uh, I've chosen a song in honour of Dinamo Zagreb because we've got this whole podcast and not mentioned uh, the, <laughs> the utter... Yes. Joy and Schadenfreude of uh, the somewhat hilarious scenario where you lose a crappy game one nil at home and go home and laugh your head off. So um, <laughs> uh, I've chosen a song by Genesis Owusu called Bye Bye. Short and to the point. Um, I also focus a little bit on West Ham. Um, I picked uh, one of my favourite songs, actually, Just, uh, by Radiohead. Uh, lyrics are, you do it to yourself, you do, and that's what really hurts. <laughs> uh, uh, it sort of really feels very Arsenal uh, at the moment. Um, thank you, Amy Lawrence. Thank you, James McNicholas. Thank you, Art de Roche. Thank you to Teo Papula, our producer as well. This has been Handbrake Off the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ian Stone. Stay safe. The Athletic.